<laughs> Hello, my name is Dawn. I am the owner of Hungry Heart Quests and host for the Hungry Heart Quest podcast. With me today is Ben Hanawalt, owner of Soma Smith and board certified structural integrator. I'm really glad that I haven't had to build a resume in almost 15 years because after all this time in practice, I'm pretty sure I'm unemployable. <laughs> <laughs> Man, it's so hard. Once again, trying to make a long story short, I found structural integration because it was the only thing that helped the chronic pain that I was experiencing. Actually, uh, during my blacksmithing apprenticeship, and um, I was in a lot of pain, and I had started practicing Tai Chi, was doing yoga, um, and I found that they kept me going, but the same problems kept coming up, and it wasn't until... I went to get some more books at the Bozeman Library because I was a big timber at the time and uh, found a three by five note card that said body worker will trade for firewood. And I was like, <laughs> I can get firewood. And it turned out she practiced structural integration and within just, oh, I want to say two or three sessions, my body was very, very different. Mm. And especially at that point in my life, I was very cerebral, skeptic, conservative. And, uh, went to go ride my horse and got up in the saddle and and the stirrups were wrong one stirrup was too short and went and readjusted counted the holes and and realized that for i think i'd had that saddle for 10 years my right leg had been at least an inch and a half shorter than the left and all of a sudden it wasn't and my stirrups were equal and that felt good and i was like something happened that's wild that you noticed that big of a difference first off and really cool that you were able to see it so visually like it was that it was measurable i think that realization changed my life and that's when i started studying structural integration and you know since then i've written multiple papers on dr rolf's work trained with as many of her students as i could find while they were still alive because she died in 79 so even before i was born have taught the basic trainings of structural integration since then and truly that's one of the things I'm most proud of so if I had to make a resume god forbid those as we were talking before we started all of this are not really the meat of the story we have mm. all of this experience behind us that mm. contributes to where we are now and I know having had some conversations with you that all of your experience in structural integration has altered how you perform your work and how you think about your work. And you were telling me how it's a language and a philosophy and mm. you've gone down the rabbit hole. <laughs> um, but where did it all start? There I was, three years old, in a crowd with my dad. Big old cow had just given birth. And I thought I could help. That mama cow was not impressed with this little human being and proceeded to try to stomp the life out of me. Really? Fortunately, she still had horns, so she had me pinned up against the barn. Wow. But uh, her horns kept her head from crushing me. That's probably where it started. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's somewhat terrifying. And I'm sure that that had a major impact on you. I don't know. Do you remember that experience? You were pretty young. I do. Trigger warning. I remember bleeding out of my ears and <laughs> being very scared. Yeah. Um, it's hard to say where it all began. It's, it's easier for me to think about it retrospectively. How all these different things led to where I am in a way that when I look back, I'm like, oh my gosh, like, I was training for this my entire life and this experience and that experience and like even um you know hunting and butchering and processing wild game mm -hmm. like i look back at that and i'm like i couldn't have had a better foundation in anatomy um, i've done human dissections in a in a lab but honestly i feel like um, those early experiences taught me so much about more more about what a living body 
Mm. Um, you know, not living, living, but close, closer. It's uh, the the agents that they use to stabilize a body after death um, changes drastically the tissues within the body. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those experiences, butchering my own animals and gave me an incredible understanding in terms of like tendons are incredibly strong. There's no way that you can with your own hands like tear a muscle off the bone. Like. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I studied anatomy as well. And ah. so I have similar experience of the difference between what people are taught in anatomy class mm-hmm. to be human tissue and what is living tissue mm. and they are night there if you ever work on a cadaver it is not anything like living tissue and having done plenty of butchering of animals myself mm-hmm. i have found that to be extremely educational on the finer notes in a way the subtler things that we learn about the body mm. that we don't think about in kind of big academy anatomy <laughs> it's true i would say that processing your own game wouldn't it be so easy if you could just be like oh here's the triceps and i'll put that in the bag and oh here's the biceps and i'll put that in a bag it's like oh no you gotta work mm-hmm. for that <laughs> yeah absolutely and there there isn't um that kind of differentiation in reality mm-hmm. and uh, i uh one of my anatomy teachers he had the analogy that what we call muscles are basically the same as zip codes. Hmm. Like they don't actually exist in any real way, but they're very useful when you're trying to specify where on the map something is located. That's an interesting thought. I like, I'm already zooming in even further thinking about like cellular level and how different Mm. muscle fibers will group and things like that. So I could imagine like it being a little neighborhood and then there's certain certain neighbors that get along really well. <laughs> there's certain avenues that have better road systems and Oh my goodness, it's so true. I've thought about that recently because uh, my office is located on on Rouse and there was I want to say 3 years there where Rouse was under major construction. Mm-hmm. And it had been my main easiest way to get to work and all of a sudden I had to like zigzag through the different neighborhoods and travel and I was thinking about that and it's like so much of what I experience when I'm working with people is very much like parts and aspects of their body were put under road construction and Mm -hmm. so their movements had to go through a much less efficient route to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. The life process is amazing in the sense that we're always healing. Always. Mm That's what life does. Even when people are fully healed, (laughs) this is what really got me thinking about this, is uh, one day I was driving to work after Rouse had been completed, and uh, I wasn't really thinking about it, and I started to zigzag through the back back woods again, or the back uh, neighborhood, because it was so habitual to drive that way after those years that I forgot that there was an easier way that I could could go, and I had to really, like... Relearn... Yeah, and I feel like movement patterns are are very similar even after an accident's healed. We can still be using compensatory uh, movement patterns even if we don't have to because it's it's habit. I had two thoughts on that. One, that maintaining those inefficient habits can lead to re-injury or new injury. Mm. And also that... At least in the analogy of road construction, <laughs> once we figure out that we can drive the route that we are normally going to be taking again, we can switch back to that. But when it comes to the body, the unlearning and the relearning poses one of the biggest challenges to people in healing. And I like mm-hmm. that you say that we're always healing because it's absolutely true. And I think a lot of people don't realize that they, their own bodies are the ones doing the healing. Not the people, I mean, there are certainly people who help with the healing and help get everything talking again, but it's still their body doing the work. Amen. Amen. I I feel like my job isn't to do something to a person. Um, 
it's to listen to and and touch in to their body's healing process and quite literally give it a hand like mm-hmm. oh there you go that thoracic vertebra derotated yeah now you can do your thing so the listening is that where you kind of started to learn that structural integration is a language is it the listening or is it the feedback through touch how did you come to view it as a language well i would like to uh dedicate that particular lesson to my to my horse shen oh um who's just turned 20 Hmm. and uh taught me how to listen and, and the language of touch because one of the things that he taught me through horsemanship and that's one of the things I'm very grateful for is that it is a touch based language mm-hmm. and so when I'm riding a horse like I might say things but those are mostly just just for me to, mm-hmm. <laughs> to help me focus my thoughts it's it's my shift in in my body and and communicating through my stance and my posture and that relationship that is where the true dance occurs and um horses are very much i think like most living beings they don't particularly like to be lectured or yelled at (laughs) um they really appreciate an easy flow of communication and so as we worked together over the last 20 years the more I was able to listen, even if it was a behavior that I might say is like bad, like throwing his head or um, balking at some shadow, the more I was able to to really listen and accept, be curious, basically. Mm -hmm. Like, what do you you say there? Um, The more our relationship refined and we were able to do more things more like a dance, which I think you probably have more experience than I do on that. But well, a lot of what you're saying makes me think about if people were able to tune in in that way to each other, because you can absolutely have that kind of communication with another human. Believe it or not, <laughs> how different the world would be, and then put them into bodies that work well for them and what happens then (laughs) you know and I love the story of the horse one I love horses because I I grew up neighboring some grazing pasture land and like 5,000 acres of state land that was like nothing out there (laughs) and a lot of the neighbors had horses and I would love to just be around them and I would like sing to them and I would just like go and hang out (laughs) and um, I always felt like those beings could never be appreciated enough I would guess that that's partly my sense of that came because they weren't listened to right and they weren't maybe cared for in the best way that they could have been so I love hearing about the connection between you and your horse because it's beautiful and it seems to have taught you a lot yeah, I, I have to put him right there on my list of greatest, greatest teachers. Another thing that he taught me that that I've utilized consistently is horses. And maybe this is all animals, but my experience with, with horses is that they are masters of the nervous system. Like their nervous system is so fine tuned that... Um, know how to describe that how how I recognized it and what I did with it was uh, because I I did have the opportunity to train him from I think he was not not a year old and just living with horses at the time so from pretty much scratch and uh, there was one time that we were just starting the saddling process of like Mm. what it is to uh, wear a saddle and uh, you'd mentioned earlier about how squeezing can feel comforting but it can also feel claustrophobic and um i think for horses claustrophobia is the like primary response so to have something strapped around them triggers uh pretty significant 
nervous system response in terms of like danger, danger, mm-hmm. um, which is often why they try to throw it off like they would, a, you know, a bobcat or yeah. another another predator. And um, so I was going through this process and I felt anxious. Mm. And um, I grew up training horses with my dad. So this was you know, something I was very comfortable with. And in that moment, I realized, like, wait a minute. I'm not feeling anxious. He's feeling anxious. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I'm feeling anxious. And um, once that recognition occurred, I started playing with that more and more. So, like, even even today when I work with a client, like, the first thing I'll do is just sit with myself and establish a baseline of how I'm feeling in that moment so that when a client comes in, any changes in how I'm feeling, I can record as information in terms of what I'm picking up from mm-hmm. their nervous system. And it can be wild even in terms of like, I remember once I'm working with a woman, she comes in and I started getting this tingling behind my shoulder blade. And I was like, wait a minute, I didn't have this tingling. And uh, got to working and we found that uh, one of the nerve branches had, had become adhered to a rib. And I didn't realize it at the time, but it was one of her primary things that she'd been working with uh, following a severe car accident was this nerve pain. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So another another interesting thing that I learned from, yeah. from my horse. And back to the dance side of that, I've watched some horsemanship videos and it's interesting to see like you can watch somebody on their horse somebody that they've been working somebody being the horse that they've been working with for a long time and they don't have to do anything obvious or aggressive it is it can be so subtle subtle. and last night I was teaching a dance lesson and one of the main focuses of the lesson last night was compression and or sorry and I say compression I mean it as an aspect of connection uh, because when you kind are, of that leaning into each other yeah exactly so we did a lot of mm-hmm. like holding hands and mm-hmm. pressing together and pressing apart mm-hmm. and we were essentially training these students to tune into their own bodies in understanding the sense that needs to happen in order to communicate to your partner and for them to communicate to you. And I was talking to Jack about it last night because he came to the lesson series and he said that it was like Tai Chi in that having a frame for the dance isn't so much about you having frame. It's about being able to almost reach into that other person and understand their frame. Mm. That's how I'm imagining this, this language and this communication happening between bodies mm. is that you're you know where you are but you can also be there and pick up on what's happening in the other person's body and then make adjustments that way amen <laughs> and it's a high level skill i would say it's even more difficult than rubbing your tummy and chewing gum at the same time <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I agree. <laughs> like having taught a lot of dancers, I'm like, okay, a lot of people do not, they're not in touch with how fine-tuned an instrument that they are, mm-hmm. and they don't listen in that way. And so, the, so much of their ability to tell if something is wrong with their body or if something is uh, right with their body or with somebody they're interacting with, they just don't have the skill because they haven't paid attention for so long or were never taught to pay attention. And so with, I'm doing this with dancing, but I'm sure that this is some component of just helping people to be in a state of listening to their own bodies better. It takes some time. It absolutely does. And I know that it was very difficult for me because found I always needed to take the sensation, turn it into a mental concept, make a plan around that, and then move with that, mm. which is a really slow process. 
<laughs> and lots of translation, right? A lot could be lost in translation. Mm-hmm. And, and like really efficient horsemanship. And this happens, I mean, in martial arts, I'm sure in dancing, riding horses. It's like if you're in motion and you have to think about it, you've already missed the boat. <laughs> it's like you're already a beat behind. And like, yep, with dancing, that's one of the things we also talked about last night was that when you have, at least for the concept of dancing, when we were teaching technique, that's one of the mm. focuses of this lesson series. And when you have that technique and good form and making sure that you're not throwing your shoulder out of joint, trying to like do this move or something, when you have all of that and you know how to move your body just inherently, you can just enjoy the dance. Mm. I dream of that moment in my own life. <laughs> in dancing or in martial arts? or Well, um, I would really like to be a great... I, I would really like to reach that level of skill in dance. Mm. Um, I, I'm definitely the dancer who is like doing, doing, and then all of a sudden stops to try to figure out how to do that spin. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, interrupts the dance quite a bit as the wheel in my, in my head starts turning. On my list. Mm. Yeah. So I'm curious about your blacksmithing history because mm. I assume that it played a role in picking the name or for your business as Soma Smith. You know, it, it does seem to be connected. <laughs> yes. Yes. Blacksmithing, when I look back on blacksmithing, it is another one of those formative experiences that gave me a lot of um, transferable skills mm. one of those is the this is a, I mean this this blacksmithing principle must go back to you know the beginning of the Iron Age but the idea that there is no use pounding on cold steel mm. steel is amazing in the fact that you can take a piece of steel that's been properly heat treated and it's a spring it will bend with, absorb all the force you put into it and be able to bounce back into shape and release all that stored energy. Almost, I mean, there's very little loss of energy in that. However, if you heat it up to a high enough temperature, the crystalline structure actually breaks down in such a way that the, uh, the carbon migrates away from the corners of the mm. crystal as that that's how it strengthens the blade or is it because has that how it becomes flexible like I don't it's know. how this it becomes malleable uh and how it becomes hardened so basically a bunch of square blocks and the and the carbon forms at the corners, so it mm-hmm. keeps them from sliding across each other right and that's a hardened steel like uh, like a blade so when you heat it up enough the carbon and the molecules change shape so that the individual atoms can have free movement. And then all of a sudden you can bend a piece of steel with your hands that you couldn't have bent with a 50 pound sledge. And so when I'm working with people, that's my first thought is, okay, so we've got some tissue here. It's stuck. Mm. How do we get it to that state where it can move? So that's partly where Soma Smith comes from, is just all those understandings of how to work with steel. Um, Fascinating thing to know is that our connective tissue has basically the same statistics as spring steel in the sense of being able to absorb kinetic energy and release it without damaging the internal structure. That's so cool. <laughs> you yeah. made me like my body 10 times more immediately yeah. just by saying that. We're, we're spring loaded. It's not just Tigger. <laughs> we are literally spring-loaded. I find that pretty awe-inspiring. So when I was coming up with a business name, there's just a lot of... Uh, even the word Smith, I think, is so fascinating because it basically means a maker. Mm. So you could be a tin smith. You could be a copper smith. You could be a silversmith. You could be a goldsmith. Um, you could be a wordsmith. You could be a locksmith. And I was like, wow. What about a Soma Smith? Love it. <laughs> <laughs> and often 
when people ask me, so what exactly is that? My favorite, one of my favorite replies is for you, like, well, it's basically locksmithing for a body. <laughs> Have you ever been locked out of your car? Well, <laughs> some people get locked out of their psoas. Some people get locked out of their cervicals. Like, mm-hmm. call the locksmith. Yeah. It's interesting for me, having had a session mm-hmm. with you, to mm-hmm. think about how that might translate into my experience being on the table. Because the smithing analogy of heating the steel, I've actually watched a lot of Instagram <laughs> videos of this. Cool. Because I have a friend who's a bladesmith. Oh, yeah. And over in Paradise Valley. And uh, he posts these videos of him making lots of different things. But it always looks like it takes a lot of energy to heat something up. Like, you, these things are glowing. The subtlety of your work is so easeful. It felt very easeful, but I experienced the the becoming more mobile. And so when I think about like, oh, okay, getting the body to that point seems like it would take a lot of energy. But when I worked with you, what you worked on with me was very gentle and easeful and it didn't it didn't have this jarring power. It was much more smooth flowing. More like molecules sliding more easily over each other. Yeah. I don't have an answer for that. There are so many different types of energy. Like heat Mm. is a type of energy. So when I rub my hands together, I can use that friction to create heat. But my my hands don't melt or... or Thank goodness. (laughs) Slough off. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I suspect... um, because very often people, sometimes they feel surprisingly tired after a session. Mm. And they're like, but I was just laying there. And you did, like you said, you weren't even really doing that much. And it's like, I'm going to go home and take a nap. And so I do think that, that um, most of the energy actually comes from inside a person. Or potentially like, I don't think it's like using up their chi, but like energetic, universal energy. Mm. Like I do feel like there is a energy flow that's happening and not primarily from pressure or friction. I think it's informational. Mm. That energy, one of the things I like to say, because uh, people often, especially if they've heard of Ralphie and think it's, you know, yeah. and are almost always surprised that it doesn't take that. And because in my experience, it's not the pressure that makes the change. It's the information that the pressure conveys. And so, yeah, I suspect there's like utilizing a larger energy field is actually part of it. And Dr. Rolf, like her big thing was gravity. Like we are a small energy field in a much larger energy field. And so her conceptualization of Rolfian and structural integration was the idea that we can utilize that greater energy field if we are in alignment with it. Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> yeah. I mean, having watched plenty of videos and seen Jack on the mat with martial artists, it's like they're tapping into something different in terms of how they can create force with less of their own energy. So mm-hmm. we could go oh my into... Goodness. Yeah. I, I think that's... I think it's, it is redirecting some sort of bigger force. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In a very precise way. Yeah. So very much like internal martial arts. And one of the things that I've thought a little bit about with body work is that a lot of people go and they're just like, I'm not doing much. I'm just lying on the table. And so they just lay on the table. But when I was working with you, I was like, no, I'm very engaged in every part of this. Like my body is relaxed and I'm responding to what your direction but I am attending to mm. that. And I think that could make or break an experience for someone in terms of the results that they see. Oh, absolutely. If they are able to attend and be active while, like, it's not a passive experience. Mm-hmm. Healing is not a passive experience. <laughs> Amen, sister. <laughs> Amen. It's true. One of the coolest things about being able to do a session with you was uh, 
how much you brought to the table, literally. There are some clients that I work with who haven't been on this kind of path and really don't have any idea of what internal movement mm. might might be. I mean, that's a very different process. So for us, it was fun because we got to start like, you know, on stage 15. <laughs> wow, um, I feel so flattered. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's, it's really fun. I mean, so much of it is like, you know, getting a chance to ride with a horse who's had a lot of training, who has the languaging that they need to interact with a human being versus a horse that's never really worked with a person before. It's like that skill makes their skill makes a huge difference in what possible outcomes mm. are available. Yeah. One of the thoughts that I had while you were speaking was that there are times when, at least in my experience, there are times when mobility is the goal, but it can go too far. Mm. I think I talked about this with you when I had my session, but I have a history of my ribs going out of place. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, not the greatest. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Um, it's, uh, it's something that people don't really realize how much mobility there is in the body. Or there, the potential for mobility there is in the body. And the ribs are a little easier because, like, you watch... Uh, CPR videos or whatever and you see like there is a lot of flex there's a lot of mobility in the rib cage even if it is providing a good amount of structure and uh, protection for some organs but there are so many other parts of our body that get neglected with movement and I would maybe say like I haven't done a lot of thinking about trying to keep those parts of my like my rib cage mobile mm. because uh, mm-hmm. because of my history with having it be a little too mobile Mm-hmm. But I've well, I've had conversations with you about how people don't think about mobility between certain joints, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. there are parts of the body that get neglected. And of course, we always see like major injuries of knees and backs mm-hmm. and like ankles and things like that. But there's a whole lot of body here. <laughs> and how many bones are there in the body? Uh, I want to say it changes well, person yeah, it person a on, little bit well, on person to person, but also, um, on age, mm. like we're born with more bones mm. and they steadily fuse together yeah. over time. Um, I forget what the, I think it's like, saying, like mid twenties, like 260 bones. Yeah. On and I think infants are born with like 308 or something uh, like that. Mm-hmm. That sounds about right. So that's a pretty big decrease in number we fuse a lot (laughs) and then you think about all the joints like Mm. one bone might have like four or five different joints Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh needs the ability to shift in relationship to all these different other aspects and that i think is part of our resilience so even like with a rib issue one of the things i'm looking at is if that rib keeps going out um, it can, in a sense, be hypermobile, but why is it hypermobile? Most likely because multiple other joints around it don't have mobility, so it's the only place in that system that can move, and mm-hmm. the system needs to move. So rather than having like one degree of movement in all these places, there's 12 degrees in one place. Yeah. And then it. Oh. That's a really good point. I have thought more about mobility mm. with the more conversations that we've had <laughs> over yes. the last couple of months and with dancing, of course. Mm. And I've been trying to be really aware of that as a teacher and an instructor being like, oh, okay, one, all of these people are under my care. <laughs> I'm like, I need to be aware of everything that I've learned about the body and make sure that I'm providing the best that I can. But there's I don't know. In a way, that's a little scary thinking about that if you have one bone with multiple joints, that almost tells me like that there's (laughs) maybe this is a fear thing that there are that many more ways to injure yourself. Um, (laughs) I think it 
might well, be a fear issue in my mind. You know, I, someday, someday I'm going to write a memoir. I think I'm going to call it a thousand and one ways to hurt yourself. <laughs> Mostly just recounting all the different stories I've heard of, of, of injuries. It can be overwhelming, I would say. And that's where we get our resilience from. It's like you look at a trampoline and it's, it's not resilient enough for an adult to bounce on it because it's made out of one piece. Mm-hmm. It's, all i don't know how many hundreds hundreds of springs along the edge and like who knows how many thousands of individual fibers that are all woven together that create that resilience Mm -hmm. and um i feel like that's the idea within our our human body is all these parts and pieces and all those joints like one bone can have those multiple joints so it has so many options for for strain to travel through Mm. and disperse Rather than injure it. Mm-hmm. That's much more positive way to think about it. <laughs> mm. and, and so really, that's um, like one of my favorite things, an assessment that I use often, and maybe I use this with you, um, is just to give a little pulse into the body to send a wave through the system. Mm-hmm. And in a really resilient system, it feels as if it is one form that a wave can transmit through mm-hmm. easily. It has that trampoline feeling to it. But if I do that and I feel it hitting like a point and it doesn't go any further than that, it's like, oh, where that wave stops, one is tells me about where the a really great place to work is. And one is that's the place that'll get injured. Mm-hmm. Like that strain will hit that point and instead of diffusing through the system, it hits that point, that's when injuries occur. That is so helpful to think about, just because I am a backpacker as well, and Mm -hmm. that is something I've done a lot of work the last six months of injury-proofing my Mm. ankles and my knees, and I because I have an ankle injury that I'm still working on. And so I've focused on that so much, but thinking about learning to figure out how your body needs to release so that the, how did you call it, force? So that it's dispersed strain. Yeah. You've got me thinking. Hmm. Yeah, and as a backpacker, like, like, for instance, you wouldn't want a backpack hanging off your neck. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Because the the strain is too acute. Mm -hmm. Like, everything about a good backpack is designed to spread the strain over as large of a surface area as possible. And um, yeah, and then you can have other things like trekking poles to help take that even further. Yeah, yeah, backpacking. I mean, there's just so much there in the terms of like, when you're packing, you know, uh, packing your pack, (laughs) Uh, your heavy items, where do you put your heavy items? As low as possible, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And close to the back. And as close to the back as possible. So. In that sense, you're looking to get the heaviest weight as close to your center as possible because the farther away from the center it is, the more energy it's going to take to move Mm -hmm. and uh, the more leverage it has to pull you around. Yeah, absolutely. uh, Like It's much harder to stabilize, which when you're moving a lot of weight, you're trying to be as stable as possible in doing so. And if you're, if it's all out of whack, pulls you around. Thinking about that freaks me out a little bit. You're just setting yourself up for injury, you know? Oh, like a poorly... A poorly packed, Mm -hmm. like a poorly balanced pack. And with that, not knowing how to use your body to work with what you're carrying, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. One of the things that, um, that is, I think sets so many of us, especially in this Western culture, up for future difficulties is the priority in education is, I would say, primarily on language, like to get a kid talking as quickly as possible, to get them in shoes as quickly as possible, to get them standing as quickly as possible without letting those processes accumulate in a natural way. Mm -hmm. And watch a little toddler like squat down to uh, pick something off the floor and it's like 
That. <laughs> that was a good squat. That was well done. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then, unfortunately, often parents are like, no, no, you need to sit in a chair. And try to try to, to skip those stages. And mm-hmm. it's all of a sudden, like, learning to kind of cage our... We can become very caged in in terms of our ability to move, partly because of the focuses of, of how movement is taught and in our culture. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Yeah. Hey, I think about it quite a lot. <laughs> I would hope so. Because <laughs> <laughs> little kiddos is like, oh man, before they're forced to adapt, like shoes. Yeah. You started doing, you've gone more and more barefoot. I have, I have. And it has changed a lot about how I move. Not only in my gait, but the ease with which I move. Things start to flow a little bit better when you're not putting yourself on these hard structures. But with the kids, I have a niece who has a twin niece. And her and her sister both have these adorable little Crocs. And uh, the one in particular that I'm thinking of, her name is Olive. And she refuses to wear shoes. (laughs) And thinking about watching them, in my experience, I'm like, oh, yeah, I've seen her do that perfect squat and sit down from that squat and then, like, go back, like, go back into a squat to stand up. I'm like, this person is never just, like, bending over to pick something up that was beautiful <laughs> and it's fascinating to watch so many forms of life do things really well it's always wonderful to see them do well <laughs> it's it's beautiful and um to me it kind of builds faith like olive wasn't taught how to do that mm-hmm. like it's in there yeah it's in there if um we don't bury it yeah, but I have to say in 15 years of practice, I have never, is this true? I don't know. It might be, it's pretty close. I've never worked with a person who could squat like that in adulthood and had low back pain. Mm, hot tip. <laughs> I, um, yeah, maintaining the ability to squat efficiently. Mm. Like a baby. Yeah. Is, uh revolutionary well i think my experience with you and through this conversation is that much of your learning about movement comes from watching life Mm. um, of many beings like animals and humans alike Mm -hmm. and you were telling me earlier about cats oh we both are (laughs) cat people (laughs) um and one of the tips that you had and i would love for you to share is the the yawn and stretch of a cat (laughs) well that's a good call because i need it right now from sitting in this chair for so long it's uh not my normal (laughs) mode but um but yeah that idea that we need multiple postures to survive in the world and cats do this so well but after sitting static That did feel good. I need to be on. <laughs> oh yeah, I feel better. That was good. Science they call that pandiculation, which is a um, primarily unconscious, um, parasympathetic nervous system response, and so animals do it very naturally. Mm. I don't overthink it. I would say one of the fascinating things about working with horses. And this is another thing that taught me quite a lot in my work, which falls under the heading of pause often. One change with a horse, you can move one thing, get it done, and then give them space. Mm. Have you ever seen a horse yawn before? I have not. Oh my (laughs) gosh. Go straight to YouTube. Um, (laughs) They have the goofiest looking yawn of all times. Like cats make it look like... Elegant and fierce. <laughs> Elegant and fierce. Thank you. Horses. Oh my God, their their tongue sticks out about like six inches. These big old buck teeth come out. Their eyeballs roll back. Their ears and oh man, yeah. If you haven't seen a horse yawn, it'll it'll make your day. And then they're ready for a new piece of work. 
that for them, they will almost always yawn and their nervous system resets and then off they go. That ability for it to reset the nervous system, I think is huge for us as, I would say, aspiring animals. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, that's so interesting. I wonder what it is about the yawn. Like if there's a, if it's like working on a vagus nerve or there's something more about it or if it's just like, ah, breath, combination. Those are really good questions. And I, I hope you continue to research that. Yeah. Um, I, I think it could be fun to explore. I think there's a lot in terms of most of your cranial nerves, um, mm-hmm. come out of right about here. And, uh, the vagus nerve is a cranial nerve. Yeah. Um, in the sense that it comes out of the brain straight and not the spinal cord. So, I mean, it has to be connected, like a good yawn, really. Like Yeah, and probably not only that one, like, you're, like if they're mostly coming out in this zone, just that action oh, and the, the tension and release of that is probably physically acting on this. And one of the things that I have learned through coaching is uh, a couple of different methods of how to relax the neck and shoulders and face. And part of that is like this just temporary kind of isometric clench of the jaw, just really short, and then like release and do it again and release and just do that a few times, Mm -hmm. which I try to be mindful of teeth when I do that. Um, Not everybody has the best teeth for such things. We um, need to find some twigs. Yeah, or a good piece of leather, <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> so, and that's yeah. a really uh, a really useful technique that works everywhere. Like, mm-hmm. shoulders are tense, and you can't untense them. Take them fully into flexion. Yeah, and then just let it out. Mm-hmm. It's so huge. Part of that is, is um, and this has to, our body is always, they call it often base tonus. We're never, our muscles are never fully relaxed. One of my favorite educational jokes is the idea that if you really, really want to get flexible, the fastest and easiest way is to uh, have somebody put you under anesthesia. I believe it. Because that is really the only time where you lose all tonus. Other than that, your body is always under a certain amount of tonus and uh, for very good reason, to protect your body. I find it's very interesting in that sense that when you take something fully into flexion, it typically remi- reminds the body that its base tonus is mm-hmm. lower than where you were. Mm-hmm. And it's a super yeah. big tool. You see that like clenching used in yoga nidra or like body mm-hmm. scan where mm-hmm. you might scan everything, but then you try to do this whole body tense and then relax it all out. Mm. There's mm-hmm. lots of ways to use that. And it's so fascinating because that's, you know, based, I don't know if you've ever uh, had your hands on a cat when they did that primary stretch. I have. Have you a... noticed how they like get super rigid? Yeah. Yeah. And then let it go? <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, don't have much to teach you, do I? <laughs> I would say that observing life process, principle of Taoism, it's like nature It already knows what to do. I feel like being human, we have to figure it out. Yeah. And uh, I would say that's been my primary quest. Like, you know, growing up very confused about what it was to be human. And, uh, you know, even my practice and all the things I've done is, is part of that quest on like, if and when I do have a kid, I'd like to learn as much as possible so that I can help them so that they don't have to struggle everything yeah Yeah, struggle as much as i did on the quest of being human well i'm grateful to know you and know that you have done all of this struggle and you're willing to share it with other people because jack's talked a lot about like oh when and if we ever have a kid we have to get him into bed because he's done a lot of thinking and learning about development through childhood and how important it is to have everything mobile and aligned for functional life it starts young in that baby squat right yeah i'm in such awe of pregnancy and the even the birthing process 
because in a lot of ways that was our first trauma Mm -hmm. and the trajectory of our development is that's the first big shift i mean even so far as like does the little baby turn its head to this way or does it turn its head to this way as it works its way through the vaginal canal Mm -hmm. is it able to nudge just a little bit to make that movement and even how like different people experience their lives who have had a cesarean where they didn't have that initial mm-hmm. challenge. Would, yeah, I would uh, I would almost go so far as to call it an initiatory process. Um, one of the things I've noticed with uh, cesarean babies is they often have a hard time sitting up. Hmm. They'll tend to just like... Because they didn't have to work to get out? I suspect yeah. in a... This is something I would like to learn more about, but like that initial nudging movement starts the nervous system, starts this movement of Mm. extension out through the crown. And that initial extension will be utilized in all sorts of different parts of the process, but that's when it it initiates. I've worked with other practitioners who spent a lot of time simply like in child's pose with your knees up on the chest and just like nudging oh, <laughs> nudging yeah. the floor with the with their forehead mm-hmm. to initiate that sequence mm-hmm. there's so many cool things that we can oh do oh my goodness <laughs> yeah well this has been very educational i don't know if you want to play an outro you're welcome to but not obligated <laughs> and i'm really glad that you got to come over and have some tea and have this wonderful conversation i've gotten to learn much more it's always wonderful Absolutely. I think we should have a closing outro. We'll close as we begin. Thanks, Ben.